1 Samuel chapter 1, we look at uh, the beginning of the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, chapters 1 through 7 really deal with this man, Samuel, who uh, is just coming onto the scene. Uh, and he is this transitionary figure that comes and bridges the span from the book of Judges, the period of Judges, that, uh, in which God had raised up individuals by which to guide Israel. Uh, previous to this, they uh, were kind of running wild over this period of the book of Judges, and uh, with each cycle, things get worse and worse. And finally, the book ends uh, of Judges ends by saying that everyone does what is right in his own eyes, which basically is just a horrible hot mess when that happens. Uh, everyone trying to do what's right in their own eyes. Uh, and so it ends in that fashion, and yet uh, we come into the book of First Samuel with that as the backdrop. And it opens uh, looking at a family that is uh, seeking to serve the Lord, that is uh, a contrast to the lives of those who were spoken of in the book of Judges. In the midst of Israel, we find that there is a family that's seeking to do right, that is seeking to honor the Lord, and uh, it opens with this uh, brief summary of this uh, struggle for uh, the, a child, really. Uh, this woman, Hannah, who is barren, uh, she's been unable to have children, is constantly uh, seeing this as a source of shame, not only for her own life, but also uh, being mocked by her rival. And in the midst of this, she goes to the temple, or, or, or to really to the tabernacle, really with her family, to, to go and make the sacrifices yearly, and finally comes to a breaking point, comes to a spot where she asks the Lord for a child not for her own purposes, but for God's glory. And this is what it ends with uh, in the book, or excuse me, in chapter 1. We find her praying this, and we find that the results of this woman's prayers is that God hears. He hears, and we find in verse 20, In due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. It's found that this woman is able to have a child in the Lord's timing. With his proper direction, he is able to release uh, this woman's womb to receive uh, this child. Something that previously was uh, held off, that was, was delayed. And we're told not only is, is this uh, something that happens, but we're told that this is the work of the Lord. It's, it's the Lord's timing that's bringing this about. Because Samuel becomes a pivotal figure in Israel's history. Now, Hannah's promise, Hannah's uh, attitude towards the Lord is that if the Lord would give her this child, she would give this child to the Lord. She's not asking for a child for her own purposes, for her own needs, for her own satisfaction but that she might produce a child that might serve the Lord, that might give God glory. And we find that as we transition into verse 21, we find the method by which Samuel comes into the house of the Lord. We read together here in verse 21, The man Elkanah, this is the husband, and all his house 
went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. So on the regular yearly track, at this next uh, sacrifice, a, a year later, this man Elkanah, he's ready. He's ready to go up and, and uh, to give his offering to sacrifice, uh, ready to pay his vow. Now, again, this is painting a, a picture for us of consistent faithfulness, of consistent godliness, when put in contrast to the people in the book of Judges, in which it ends, and then also, you can kind of just keep this in mind for the future, the uh, priest Eli, his family. So we, caught, we kind of got this, this group here, this, this uh, righteous family that's being sandwiched in between both the people of the book of Judges who are basically a hot mess, they're just sinning and all crazy, and then we find Eli who's supposed to be a righteous family with uh, him and his kids, and they're also not doing great. And so here we're, we're looking to see this, this prototypical family. This is what it is to be uh, someone who serves the Lord, to be consistently moving towards Christ. And so Elkanah and all his house, he's like, let's do this. We're ready to go and worship the Lord again. He's leading rightly. He's not just like, oh, you know, I'm going to go do my thing. He's like, let's go together. We're, we're working to serve the Lord together. And then we find here uh, Hannah, not really prepared yet to accompany her husband on this trip. She's not ready to uh, make this transition of uh, passing off Samuel to the Lord. So we find in verse 22, Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord to dwell there forever. <coughs> now, Hannah doesn't make the trip uh, for what we find to be three years. Now, this, of course, uh, brings a little bit of uh, a delay to Samuel being delivered to the temple. Remember, it was her, her promise that this child would, be, would belong to the Lord, that it wasn't for her, but it was for the Lord. And she delays... In going because she wants to uh, continue to care for this child to bring him to a proper age. Women at this time uh, would, uh, you know, often, you know, kind of prototypically, they would nurse for up to three years, uh, and then at the end of that, your child would be weaned. Now, here's here's uh, how Hannah's operating. Under the law, women weren't obligated to go. They weren't obligated to go up to these uh, these. Uh, annual festivals. It wasn't something that they had to do, but yet every year it was something that Hannah did do because she delighted in the Lord. She wanted to serve the Lord. She wanted to go. And here she finds a new ministry, a new opportunity to, to bring this child to a place of nourishment, to bring him along the way so that she is preparing the Lord's vessel to serve him. And so uh, we find here that Elkanah, a godly man is not one who's just like, well, you know, you've got to come with me because this is what we do every year. He's someone who dwells with his wife with understanding. He hears where she's at. And more than that, he trusts that she is passionate to serve the Lord, 
that she is seeking the Lord. He gives her the room to grow and to listen to the Lord. And so what he says in verse 23 is this. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. The attitude that Elkanah has as a caring husband is one where he says, you know, I know you have a relationship with the Lord. I know that you've made this vow to the Lord. I know that you have this prayer that you have pressed into. And I trust that you're going to honor it. I trust that you are going to serve the Lord. I trust that, that you are going to treasure him above all other things. You're not going to become distracted. You're not going to find a way to go back on your promise. And in fact, what he says here is, I'm going to go and I'm going to pray into your promise for you. He says, only may the Lord establish his word. What happens here is this. She has prayed this prayer and said, Lord, if you will give me a child, the child will belong to you. And so Elkanah, he comes and he says, we're going to, to affirm this, uh, this covenant that's made. We're going to affirm this prayer. Now, this is a big deal. This is a big deal here. Because if, if you look back at the history of Israel, if you look back at the history of the law, Elkanah is one who is a husband who acts as a covering for this woman, his wife. And it is said in the law that if a woman makes a vow, that it's up to her husband to, he, can, he has the opportunity to either reject that vow if it was something that was made without his knowledge or understanding. He can be like, no, like you made that vow and we're not going to honor it because like he is going to sign off on it or reject it. He didn't have to keep to this. He could have been like, hey, you know, we got a kid. Like this is what we've been waiting for. We've been waiting for this child. It's great. It's, our, it's a firstborn son here uh, to you, Hannah. He could have been like, you know, I know you made this vow, but like really, like, you didn't ask me about this. And so, like, I think we should keep him. That's not what Elkanah does. He, his attitude is one in which he wants to serve the Lord. He wants to honor that vow. He believes in the relationship that Hannah has with the Lord. And so, instead of nullifying the vow, he affirms it. He says, no, we are going to keep this. We are going to keep this. Now, if you think about this, her heart is absolutely in the right place. Her heart's absolutely in the right place. She wants to serve the Lord. She wants to prepare Samuel to serve him most faithfully. It would have been very easy for her right away when she has this child to be like, okay, like, yeah, like, Right at the point where, he, like, this kid's starting to be a real pain in my neck, right when he's, like, keeping me up at all hours of the night, like, now that's the time to get rid of him. Like, peace. Like, let's take him now. Like, it's getting, like, a little bit crazy. It would have been easy even earlier on when, before she's formed this bond. But to, but to see a child that you're caring for, that you're taking care of, that is running around your house, that you're playing with, that you're, you're ministering to, for a period of three years, a, a tight bond is formed there. To see that, that is much more difficult. 
She knew that this is what was coming. But she was prepared to serve the Lord. <coughs> Verse 24, And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and the child was young. So when Samuel reaches this age of three, he's weaned. At this time, when they're ready to make the journey and the annual feasts, this time she goes up with Samuel. And she goes not alone, but she goes with an attitude of service, an attitude of sacrifice. She comes with a generous offering. She doesn't come with uh, this meager offering, but she comes uh, with this huge spread by which to worship the Lord. She comes up, a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, skin of wine, verse 25. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. So they come there, and their order of service is still intact. They don't come and are distracted by this new task. They come and they show up. They offer their sacrifice. And then they pass off Samuel to Eli. This would have been the time where Samuel witnesses what happens at the tabernacle here. This would have been the time where he would have experienced this. He would have been like, oh, this is what's happening. This is where you guys go every year. This is what, what goes on. But he would have understood, as he would have been instructed, as he would have been taught, that this is the place by which he's going to live, by which he's going to transition to. He's being taken from the house of Elkanah and Hannah into the house of the Lord. A vessel that is prepared in the house of his parents and yet is delivered over her into the hands of his heavenly father. Samuel here is to be raised up to serve the Lord. This is the beginning of his training, the beginning of his relationship with the Lord, the beginning of his ministry in guiding Israel. Now as Hannah rolls up, they bring this child to Eli. <coughs> we read in verse 26. And she said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, as the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. So she comes and she reminds Eli of this time three years previously where she runs out of this 
meal. She's like on her way and she's like standing at the, at the door of the house of the Lord there. And she's just like in this intense session of prayer and she's crying out to the Lord and she's kind of like speaking this gibberish. And Eli just thinks like she's like a drunk lady and he's like trying to rebuke her for being drunk in the Lord's house. And she's like, no, like you're off your rocker. I'm like praying. Like I've, I've got like this intensity in my spirit. I'm, I'm really uh, having a difficult time. She reminds him that the Lord's promises are true. That he's faithful. He's like, I, remember, I was here. You were here sitting and I was here praying, asking for this. And you said, may it be as you ask. May the, may the Lord accomplish what you're asking for. And here we have both the physical manifestation of God's hand at work in the life of Hannah. That he would bring life into a season of barrenness. That he would bring deliverance from an unexpected area. A place where it looked like there was nothing. A place where it looked like it was hardship or difficulty. The Lord's hand is at work. Isn't that the, the theme of Scripture? Isn't that the trajectory by which we are all on? It's that moment of weakness. It's that time in our lives where things feel like they're the worst, where the Lord is preparing us. It's that time just before the dawn breaks, in those twilight hours and the hardships, when things don't make sense, when we can't see the path, when there's not a way. It's that we don't see the way, but God is preparing the way. The question that we have to, to ask ourselves is that when we finally get the light of day, are we going to walk that path? Because we, we all get there. It's inevitable for all of us to get to the spot where we see the path again. But the majority of the time what happens is we say, well, I don't think that's a good way to go. Uh, I see what you're doing there. That's not really for me. That's not the way I'm thinking about going. That's not the way I'm headed. We all get to the spot where there's a little bit of clarity again. It's just, do we have the ability to continue following him? Do we have that resolve to continue pursuing him, even if the path doesn't look like it makes sense? If there's a fork in the road, if there's a spot that it looks like it's narrowing or becoming more difficult, or all of a sudden it's like, oh, we're adding an extra eight miles onto this journey for no reason, like there's a shortcut right there, like let's just go that way. Are we following him? Are we going with him on the journey? I imagine that in Jesus' time, his disciples learned to walk with him instead of trying to be like, well, you know, Jesus, like, we really are like from this area, so like, let me tell you how to get there more quickly. But I imagine that Jesus took a lot of detours to get to a lot of people that needed his touch. That Jesus kind of went out of his way to accomplish some things that were probably not the quickest way. They weren't the most efficient way to get from point A to point B. But as we walk with Jesus, it's the journey in which he's working it's the journey in which he's 
working in our lives to sanctify us and the journey in which he's using us to meet other travelers along the way, to find other people. They'd be like, hey, I didn't expect to be here. Well, let me, uh, let me encourage you. Let me help you. It's that journey we've got to learn to pause in, to press in to Christ, to ask those questions. How can I be used faithfully? How can I go out of my way? How can I take a little bit longer with this person to be a better listener, to meet their needs? She reminds Eli of this promise that the, she had made to the Lord. <coughs> and because God had answered her prayer, Hannah uh, indeed dedicates her child to the Lord for as long as he lives. And she comes back by emphasizing this uh, exchange that she's had with the Lord. When she recounts it back to Eli uh, in verse 27, she says this, For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I lent him to the Lord as long as he lives. He is lent to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord. There we find that she's just saying, I asked the Lord for something, and he responded. I prayed, I asked, I sought him. What she's doing here is this. She's saying that I was empty. I didn't have anything. I was barren. And I asked the Lord to work. And he gave me something. But I know that it belongs to him, so I'm just giving it right back to him. He gave me something, and now I'm giving it back to him. This is the attitude that we should have as Christians. The Lord's going to give you thing after thing, season after season, it's your job to figure out how to give it back to him in forms of service, in forms of opportunity to serve, in forms of influence. He may give you a new season in your career. He may give you a new season with, uh, with resources. You may have a, a, a windfall of cash. You may find a season where you were given a new opportunity to travel. You may be given all sorts of things. What you need to do and what we all need to do is recognize that it doesn't belong to us. It's a tool by which we can use to serve the Lord. It's a tool by which we can give to him. It's a tool by which we can minister to others. She finds that she's given a child, and she says, I see what you're doing here, Lord. You've blessed me with this. Now I'm going to return to you that which you have blessed me with. What has God given to us? What will he give to us that we can return to him with our gifts, our talents, our abilities, our resources, our time? We've got to be always looking for opportunities to serve, 
to give back. Because let me tell you this, we are exactly and no different in attitude than the disciples were when they were talking to Jesus about forgiveness, right? Jesus said, you know, you've got you to forgive people, and, and they're like, well, how many times do we have to forgive Jesus? Like, is seven times enough? All of a sudden, this is what we do as humans. We say, oh, you want me to do something? Okay, well, no problem. Just tell me when it's enough. You give me the limits so I can make sure that you're happy and I can do the thing. And then, you know, after, you can't get mad at me because I did exactly what you asked. Like you said, this many times, pow, yep, that's exactly what I'm going to do. But you got yours, so now it's my turn to get mine. That same attitude we often translate to everything else. Everything else that touches the lordship of Christ on our lives, we say, oh, you've given us this? We're supposed to use it for the Lord? Oh, yeah, no problem. Well, you know, I'm going to make sure that, like, I do that. But then also, like, I'm going to do that a whole bunch. But then, like, you know, then this here's for me. But nobody can get upset because, like, don't you see all the stuff I'm doing over here? We start to think of ourselves immediately. As soon as we begin to serve the Lord, we think, well, what about me? What am I going to do? What am I going to get? If you don't think about yourself first, and you do have the practice of, of thinking about others first, how you could serve the Lord first, how you can take what he's given you to serve the Lord first, yourself isn't far behind. You've got to plan it out so that way you can say, like, oh, I did the right thing. But immediately, our sinful little hearts look for that loophole right away. Like, okay, got that squared away, now for me. Got to make sure I did the right thing. Done. Okay. Whoa, whoa. Now my turn. It's just part of who we are because we're sinful little jerks. And we all want stuff for ourselves. But we've got to put that to death. Not I, but Christ. How can we serve faithfully? How can we give? How can we meet the needs of others? How can we serve the Lord with all that he's given to us. I will tell you this. Your needs will be met. You will be taken care of. You don't need to think about taking care of yourself. Jesus will take care of you. You don't need to be like, oh, well, let me put it aside a little bit for me and let me make sure I'm taken care of. Focus elsewhere, the rest of that will come as the Lord naturally works. <coughs> Hannah gives. Samuel to the Lord. She says, here you go. He's yours. Now, she sees him still uh, on occasion because she still comes up for these offerings. You know, she comes to the yearly feast, so she, like, gets to see him. She'll bring him, you'll see, she gets to bring him, like, little gifts and things like that, which are pretty fun. Um <clears throat> But there's this exchange that happens with the family here. A passing of this child from one house to another house. 
And the result here is this, we find in verse 28. And he worshiped the Lord there. It's a little bit confusing because you're like, like, who worshiped the Lord? Like, is it Samuel? Is it Eli? Is it like Elkanah? Like, what's happening here? I think it's, I, I mean, scholars argue about it, but I think it's like kind of supposed to be a little bit vague because you kind of see that the result of these things done rightly is worship. I think that that's what we're, what we're really supposed to take away from it, not like finding out like, well, who exactly was worshiping? I, I think the idea here is the result of this exchange where God is honored is worship. And we transition from this exchange into another period of worship uh, right into chapter 2 is Hannah prays. This is what she says. <coughs> my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There's none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. She opens up this prayer with this like epic exaltation of God. She opens up her, her response to this time by lifting up God. And what she does here is she says, he has rescued me. He has seen my situation, my circumstance, my hardship, my barrenness, and he has reached in and rescued me. Right? She says, my heart exalts in the Lord. She's personally been moved, affected. She says, my mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Now, that's a little bit interesting what she says there here because what she's, we kind of like, we jump to our interpretation real quickly there uh, because we're a little bit out of this circumstance. But when she says, I rejoice in your salvation, what she's speaking of there specifically is her son. Like the Lord has saved her from this barrenness. He has taken this season of hardship and he has provided fruitfulness in her life. She has been saved, rescued. Then she comes and she transitions from that to, to looking at God's character, both in who he is and then also how he acts towards those who are uh, really against her, I guess, in a sense. He says, there, uh, she says, there is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. She rejoices in his holiness, his strength. And then she comes to speak of his knowledge in uh, verse 3. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him all actions are weighed. Here we have this contrasting theme that begins to arise again and again throughout this book of pride and humility. There are those who are boasting, those who are speaking proudly, those who are arrogant, 
but yet we find that it is the humble who are exalted. We find that it is the lowly, the barren, who are used. And here she would have been speaking this prayer in like the midst of the community, like where there are people and, and like everybody would have heard this. And so what she's really doing in the midst of all of this, she's also speaking against anybody who would be at the house of the Lord who would be coming with this attitude of, of wanting to boast in their own self-sufficiencies. She says, only the Lord saves. Only the Lord knows. He is the judge who weighs all actions. He understands. He sees. Now, she goes on in verse 4 to widen her lens a little bit more. She expands uh, on God's rule here in the world. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. The framework that she puts in place is one of God ruling and reigning over all things. Contrasting those who were once rich, those who were once full of bread, but now they have to go out and hire themselves out. And those who were hungry have ceased hunger. There's this reversal imagery that's being brought into play here. That those who were strong have come to nothing. Those who are weak have been exalted. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. <coughs> what Hannah does here, she doesn't do anything out of the ordinary. She simply reflects on God's character, who he is, what he has done. She's like, I was low, and he has strengthened me. He has lifted me up. I was barren, and he's made me fruitful. I was poor, and he made me rich. It's not anything special. She's just saying, like, this is just God's character. This is just who he is. And we move to verse 9, where Hannah reflects on how it will be uh, when God fully rules, and it's complete. She has hope in, the re in God's future rule, when he's fully ruling. <coughs> she says this, he will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. 
The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. She uses these last words to speak not, of, not only of what she's been saved from, but where things will end. Hope not just for her, but for all. For all who call on the name of the Lord. She rejoices in the hope that God will rule and reign. At the end, God's people will be delivered. Those who stand against them, who oppose God's people, will face judgment. And what she, what she says here is that this will happen by and through by and through his king, his anointed one. Which is a bit of a strange thing to hear at this point in the story because Israel doesn't have a king. So like, what the heck is going on here? Right? What, what in the world's going on? Is not... There's no king by which to speak of. Well, of course, we find that this here translated, uh, we find in, in this last sentence, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the, the horn of his anointed. So we find both this office of king and we find also the idea of the anointed one. Now, this would have reached back into Israel's history a bit. Those who God has used historically uh, are typically called the anointed one or uh, anointed in oil in some, with oil in some sort of way. This will be how the future kings are selected. We find this, of course, uh, in the coming chapters with Saul. We find this carried over David. But we, we see this anointing uh, all throughout the scripture. But as we look at this, this term that we find here in the Old Testament is carried over into the New Testament. In the Old Testament, this, uh, in this particular passage here, the idea of being the anointed one is uh, this Hebrew word or, or phrase, Mashiach, which essentially is where we get the New Testament translation of Messiah. And so the anointed one would be one who would be, uh, in, God would be using throughout Israel's history. But in the New Testament, we find that this is associated with the future anointed one, a deliverer. And so Hannah's prayer moves from one that is speaking just of her current situation to one that is, uh, is really predictive. She's ultimately announcing God's future rule and reign. She's announcing that God will judge the whole world. She's announcing that God will give strength to the king and that he will also raise up this anointed one, this Messiah, who we find will be one, the king and the anointed one come 
to head in the person of Christ. She's praying this out at the place of sacrifice, at the house of the Lord, where Jesus would be about his father's business, at the place where the veil would be torn as Christ hangs upon the tree, his blood is shed for the sin of the world. She speaks forth these words as a pattern of what will come. What she does in the giving of her son, it's really just breadcrumbs for us to say this child belongs to the Lord. He's here to be in the house of the Lord, to serve the Lord, to lead Israel out of this season of difficulty, to lead them to serve the Lord rightly. We call your attention back to verse 8, where we find that the Lord raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. This is perfectly descriptive of the work of Christ. Of what Paul tells us in Philippians 2 in the great Christ hymn that uh, though he was in the form of God, he did not consider himself to, to, to be of, uh, to have these rights that he would hold on to them, but that he would willingly put them off, coming in the form and likeness of mankind living a perfect life in our place. He condescended. He went from glory into a place of our sinful world, coming into the dust, so that he might go to the cross, so that he might pay that price for you and I, so that he might defeat death, conquer sin, Through his rising from the grave. He did this so that you and I, who were dead in our trespasses, might be raised up together with him. And thereby we might be those who are the poor in the dust, that we might be those who are the needy in the ash heap and are being raised to sit with princes in the seat of honor. This is the work of the true king. So Hannah gives us just a, a little bit of a, a taste, a morsel of what could be. Of course, we find more along the way as more breadcrumbs along the way as we get to uh, more of Samuel's work as we get to David. we see more of the Messiah. We finish in verse 11. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. <coughs> we end with the family keeping their promise, serving the Lord faithfully, 
passing off Samuel to the house of the Lord. And we find that Eli, or excuse me, that Samuel serves there, ministers to the Lord under the eye of Eli the priest. Now, although Eli is a little bit off his rocker, he's not like uh, got it together as much as he should, and we find that the Lord's faithful. The Lord does his, his work, and the Lord is really the one who's watching over Samuel here. We'll jump into that next week. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your faithfulness to us. We're thankful that, uh, Lord, you saw the situation, the circumstance that we were in, in the ash heap, in the dust, that we were not able to rescue ourselves, to save ourselves, and Lord, yet you willingly came to save us, to rescue us. And so, Lord, we we want to say thank you. <coughs> we want to say thank you for meeting us in our brokenness, in our seasons of despair and barrenness, and for shining your light upon us. Lord, we want to know you more. We want to trust you more deeply. And Lord, as we walk through this life, we pray that you would continue to sanctify us, that you would make us more and more and more like Jesus. We ask that you would fill us afresh and anew with your Holy Spirit, that you would give us right desires to serve you, that you would give us right desires to take the things that you have entrusted us with, the gifts and talents and abilities. You would give us right desires to give those things back to you, to see how we can serve you with them most faithfully. And Lord, we know that it's difficult. We know that it's hard. We know that it's in, when, when you are giving us things, especially coming out of seasons of barrenness, where we're tempted to hoard, where we're tempted to, to think about ourselves first, we want to see how we can take every situation, every opportunity uh, to walk with you mindfully, circumspectly about what you might do. We want to be led by you. And we want to do things with you. And so help us, Lord, evermore to rely upon your Holy Spirit. Help us, Lord, to be more deeply satisfied in who you are. Help us to be under your lordship, where you are ruling, where you're reigning over our lives in every way. Where each day, Lord, we are, are in a place of longing for your work in our lives, for your direction in our lives. So, Lord, we pray that you would be glorified in your church Teach us 
direct us and how we might be able to pursue you more faithfully. Draw near to us as we draw near to you. We love you. Amen.